Thank you, Mike and Jana. Special Valentine's Day song there. Love of Jesus. Thank you. Well, please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 3 as we continue going through the Gospel of Luke. We're here in Luke chapter 3 this morning. As you turn, let me just remind you that today is the the day, if you haven't already done so, to RSVP for our special banquet next week here at, at Five Points as we continue talking about God's plans for our church. I think it's just a very important Sunday for us all, to, as many of us as are possible, to be together uh, to, to talk about what God's plans may, may be for our church. And it's just neat to have unity of the church as we discuss those plans. So just encourage you in that if, if you're able to, to make that, that time for us as a family to, to talk about those plans. Luke chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 20 over the next two weeks, and this morning we'll read verses 1 through 20, although we won't get to all of them this morning. So please stand with me as we read those verses together. Luke chapter 3, verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Arturia and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins." As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down. And thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money, extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages and the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ John answered them all saying I baptize you with water but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. 
May God bless the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love as we think about the work that you did on the cross that demonstrates your love toward us. And now as we have placed our faith in your son Jesus, we have the ability to be in relationship with you. And Father, that is a sign of your love that is beyond beyond argument. And we pray that our, our hearts would be very soft as we consider your love toward us. And we pray that you would cause us to have hearts of repentance here as we talk about the message of John that was from you. Give us uh, open hearts, we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, there are millions, there are, are tens of millions of people who are attending church somewhere. Tens of millions of people who are attending church, and, and some of them have attended churches for decades. Year after year, they've attended church, and yet they have never heard about God's call on their life to repent. They've been in churches for decades. They've attended year after year. And although they've attended church faithfully for decades, no one has ever told them that they must turn from their sins, repent of their sins, and place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That message, although they've been in church for years, has never been proclaimed to them. And that is a tragedy beyond comprehension. The church has failed to proclaim the need to repent. The result of this failure is, is several fold. At best, at best, what happens when a church fails to call people to repentance is you have a, a church that is full of immature believers. That is, people who have maybe a, a vague understanding of, of sin and their need to place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, so they've understood that much of the gospel, but because repentance isn't being proclaimed, they have a very vague understanding of the nature of sin, the depth of their depravity, and what it means to repent of their sins on an ongoing basis, and so you have very immature believers. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario, and I believe this is far more often the case, is you have people in a church that fails to call people to repentance, and you have a church that produces a church full of unbelievers. That is, it's a church full of people who have maybe some warm feelings about Jesus, or they've been told that Jesus wants to, to be their friend, and so they've said, well, I want Jesus to be my friend too, and they've prayed some prayer. But no one has ever told them, look, you're a sinner, you're in danger, your soul is in danger of spending eternity in hell apart from God. You need to stop clinging to your sins, your dead works, and turn, repent, and place your faith in Jesus Christ. No one has ever proclaimed that message to them, and so they stand in danger of God's eternal wrath, and the church has failed them. This morning we're talking about repentance, and I'm going to spend quite a bit of time just describing what I believe is the, the problem in the evangelical church today in failing to call people to repentance. Let me first kind of describe what repentance means. To repent means this, it means to change one's mind 
about sin, and not just one's mind, but one's feelings toward and intentions toward sin. So, for example, a person is confronted with, with their sin, and as, as they repent, they say, look, this action that I was doing, I recognize now as sin. This was a wrong thing for me to do, and maybe I didn't understand that it was wrong before. Now I understand that it's wrong. I'm turning from that sin. I no longer want to do it. I, I've changed my thinking about it. I've changed my heart attitude toward that sin, and my intention now is to no longer engage in this activity. That's repentance. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, describes repentance this way. He says, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. That's a great definition of repentance. The question is, why are churches afraid to call people to repent? Why is the church today so often afraid to talk about sin and the need to turn from sin? I don't believe that I fully understand the answer to that question, but I have some thoughts. I want to give some illustrations and talk about the philosophy of ministry that, that informs what's happening in the church today. For example, Sunday morning worship service. Some churches and many segments of Christianity believe that a Sunday morning worship service should be designed not for the believer, but for the unbeliever. And so they ask themselves, well, what does an unbeliever enjoy? What does an unbeliever want to see in church? They ask unbelievers, what would make church more acceptable for you? And they design their entire Sunday morning worship service around what an unbeliever would enjoy. So they spend an hour entertaining unbelievers. And at the heart, I believe there's some good intention there. They, they want unbelievers to feel welcome. They want people who aren't familiar with church to feel welcome. But the problem with that philosophy is twofold. First of all, it's not what God says a Sunday morning worship service should be all about. God says that the purpose of a Sunday morning worship service or a corporate worship service is to instruct the believer and engage in worship of God. Secondly, it's not all that helpful, catch this, it's not all that helpful for the unbeliever. You've spent an hour entertaining a person who doesn't love Jesus Christ without giving them the message that they need the most. Very quickly, let me just read you a, a text from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that I believe is a very powerful argument against this what's so, the so-called seeker-sensitive type of service. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says this in verse 24. He's talking about what should take place in a worship service. In verse 24, he says, But if all are prophesying, that is, proclaiming God's word, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's what should take place in a worship service. As God is being worshiped, as his word is being proclaimed, as his truth is being proclaimed by all, a person who is not a believer comes in and says, wow, God is really in this place. The thoughts of their hearts, they're convicted, and they respond in repentance. 
And so absolutely, a church should be engaged in, in loving unbelievers, and, and a church should do all that it can to welcome an unbeliever, but the most helpful thing for an unbeliever in a corporate worship service is not to design the worship service around them, but to focus on the glory of God and calling both believers and unbelievers to repentance. Now, this is Valentine's Day. I am the love pastor, self-declared. And uh, so I want to, I want to say this uh, in a spirit of love that it, that's intended, but I want to give you some examples of how I believe this plays out in churches. And I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, one church to begin with, Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago with, with uh, Pastor Bill Hybels. And I believe that uh, Willow Creek Community Church has a different philosophy of ministry for their Sunday morning services. And I, and I say this in a spirit of love, but I think it's important to illustrate how pervasive this attitude is in churches today. Now, uh, Pastor Hybels is, I believe, a brother in Christ. I believe that we both agree to the essentials of uh, orthodoxy and, and truth, and I believe that he has a, a biblical understanding, at least as, as he describes his understanding of the gospel, I believe that he has a biblical understanding of, of sin and repentance, and yet, his philosophy of ministry in Willow Creek's philosophy of ministry is profoundly different than what I believe a biblical philosophy of ministry is, especially in this issue of repentance. Let me say what I mean. Willow Creek Community Church teaches that there are kind of four groups of people that attend their church on a Sunday morning. One group would be what they describe as pre-Christians, people who have not yet placed their faith in Christ. The second group would consist of new Christians. The third group growing Christians, and the fourth group, mature Christians. And their intent is a very, very biblical intent. I fully support them in their goal. They say our goal is to take pre-Christians, unbelievers, and turn them into fully devoted followers of Christ. That is a great goal, and, and I think we as all as believers should affirm them in that goal, right? The problem is how they believe that process takes place. Recently, I believe it was a couple of years ago, Pastor Hybels announced that they had just done a survey, and they had surveyed people in, in each of these four groups. And they had asked them, one of the questions they had asked them is, how well is Willow Creek doing at meeting your needs? Very interesting results. The people who are pre-Christian, which is an interesting phrase in and of itself, these people said, out of, on a scale of 1 to 10, a 9, okay, doing a great job meeting my needs. The sermons are relevant to me. The people who were new Christians said 8, 8 out of 10, doing a great job getting me involved in small groups and, and I'm enjoying the fellowship. Pastor Heibel said what was interesting is how their scores tapered off with the group of growing Christians and mature Christians. And as Pastor Hybels talked about the survey, he said, what we're going to do is change the way that we minister to these growing Christians and mature Christians. And my contention is that Pastor Hybels and Willow Creek Community Churches, they remain committed to this idea of the seeker-sensitive service, have really missed an opportunity here. The answer, I believe, starts at the very beginning 
And instead, instead of asking an unbeliever, look, what sort of message would you like us to give you? What would you like us to talk about? What's relevant in your life? And how can we make Jesus kind of relevant to you? What ha- needs to happen at the very beginning is a call to repentance. Say, look, you are in danger because of your sin. And what you need is not a buddy, is not a therapist. What you need is a savior. And as you begin at that very first point, calling people to place their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, it radically impacts the level of maturity of Christians as they continue in the faith. And my fear, brothers and sisters, my fear is that we in the evangelical community at large, without picking on any particular group at this point, we have produced perhaps tens of thousands, if not millions of people who have made some sort of vague affirmation that they like Jesus a whole bunch, but they've never understood their need for a Savior. They've never passed from death into life by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. Let me give you just a few more examples. These examples take place from a book called Tell the Truth, and Will Metzger is the author of this book, and he gives some examples of some, some gospel tracts that he's, he's seen. One gospel tract, that, you know, these are little things you'd give out to people, one gospel tract is entitled What's Your Game? or What's Your Favorite Game? And the tract, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, says something like this, we, we all play games. We play these social games with one another to help us fill this void in our lives. We want, we're crying out for companionship, and we fill that hole in our lives with work projects, with athletics, with television, with clubs, with travel, with entertainment, with parties, with drugs. But no matter what we do, this longing in our hearts still remains. God can fill that emptiness, and if you're tired of playing games, say yes to Jesus. You won't find satisfaction until you're at one with Jesus. Now, Is that tract true? Yes, it's true that we have this hole in our lives, and it's it's true that we won't find satisfaction until we come into relationship with God. But what is is missing from that tract? It's emphasizing this hole in our lives when there's something far more serious than this this mere hole. We're on a a highway, a, a pathway to judgment, What we need is not some some guy to come in and fill this little hole in our heart. What we need is repentance to turn from the sin that's caused us to be separated from God and to place our faith on the only one who can save us. And that message isn't being proclaimed. Let me give you another example. Again, this is hopefully you see how pervasive this is in the gospel presentations you hear. This, this, one is, this gospel tract was entitled Meet My Friend, and it just lists these different characteristics of Jesus, and it supports them with some verses, but it says this, Meet My Friend, and these are the different categories. Uh, meet My Friend who is faithful. Meet My Friend who is the way to God the Father. Meet My Friend who already loves you. Meet My Friend who wants to give you eternal life. Meet My Friend who is the only one uh, who, can, who can give you eternal life. Uh, Meet my friend who won't refuse anyone. Now that you've met my friend, don't you want to commit your life to him? You see what's missing from that gospel presentation? Jesus isn't just a friend. Jesus is the Savior that can rescue you from your sin and the penalty for sin. 
That call to repentance is a crucial component of the gospel message. There's a need to recognize sin, to turn in repentance and faith to the only one who can save you, Jesus, as your Savior. And this morning, we're going to begin looking at the story of John the Baptist here in Luke chapter 3. And it's very interesting, isn't it, how God begins his gospel presentation. God doesn't begin his gospel presentation with a seeker-friendly service. He doesn't hold a big rock concert for all the Roman soldiers. He sends John the Baptist. And if there's ever a guy who wasn't a very seeker-friendly guy, it's John the Baptist. Turn or burn! That's John the Baptist. And that's how God begins his gospel presentation. That's how God begins the good news of Jesus Christ, because the good news isn't good news unless you understand the bad news. This fires me up, if you can't tell. (laughs) It fires me up because I fear for people who have not responded to the true gospel. I fear for people who have responded to something less than the gospel, and it greatly concerns me. It greatly concerns me and troubles me. Well, let's, let's look here at the text, and what we're going to do is we're going to see this week and next that forgiveness from our sins is always accompanied by genuine repentance. Forgiveness from our sins is always accompanied by genuine repentance. We're going to look at six characteristics of true biblical repentance, of the call to repentance, six characteristics from John the Baptist's declaration. The first thing we see about the call to repentance is the call to repentance is proclaimed by God to lost people. Look again at verses 1 and 2 with me. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and a tetrarch was like a local ruler, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of, boy, it's hard to say this being from Texas, but Abilene, it looks like Abilene to me, uh, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, all right? Well, what he's saying here is, first of all, Luke is giving us the historical context in which John the Baptist is going to begin his ministry. This isn't some legend that he devised. This took place at a real point in time, around 28 AD, possibly 29 AD. This is a real historical point in time. Furthermore, what he's telling us is a little something about the spiritual climate in which John the Baptist ministers. Look at the people that he lists here. The first person that he lists is Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar deported the Jews from Rome. He went insane. He was, he went, it was just a terror at the end of his reign. Pontius Pilate was not a good ruler. He was proud. He was petty. He was brutal. He stole money from the temple, and then he killed the Jews who protested his uh, theft. Herod Antipas was uh, mentions here with his brother Philip. He was not a good ruler. He, remember, he executes John the Baptist later. Uh, he mentions Licinius. We don't know much about him. He mentions also Annas and Caiaphas. Here he's talking about the religious leaders in, in Jerusalem. Annas and Caiaphas were part of this, this dynasty that were, that were engaged in just, just some terrible things spiritually as they ruled there in, in Rome over the, the Jewish people religiously. And Annas and Caiaphas, they would uh, steal money from or they would take a, a cut of the money of things that were sold there. They were, they were not good religious leaders. They lived in, in lavishness and luxury. Now, he says, uh, in that cultural context, that decadent context and culture, John the Baptist is called to minister. And John the Baptist stands in stark contrast to the other religious leaders of the day. Remember, we were introduced to John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. He told us about 
uh, John's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah. They were his parents. They were godly people. And we last saw John in Luke chapter 1, verse 80, as it talks about him being in the wilderness. So you have Annas and Caiaphas, these religious leaders of the day, living in luxury in Jerusalem. You have John the Baptist. And from Matthew, we know that he, what's kind of the prominent picture we have of him? He's wearing this camel hair, the leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey. He's out in the wilderness. He could not stand in greater contrast to the culture that he's called to minister to. Something else that's interesting here. Something else that's interesting. It says in verse 2, what? It says that the word of God came to John. Here are these bleak times spiritually. And John the Baptist begins a social commentary, right? John the Baptist comes up with five points that he believes his culture should understand. John the Baptist comes up with some help, self-help techniques for Roman soldiers and tax collectors and the Jewish people. Is that what happens? No. God's message comes to John. The word of God comes to John, and God says, this is the word that you take to this culture. This is the message that they need to hear. Do you see the point? As you and I confront our culture with the call to repentance, it's not our call. And sometimes people look at the church and they say, boy, you guys sure are are judgmental and and prideful, and, and we as a church must be very careful and examine our hearts and make sure that that's not true. But ultimately, the message we proclaim is not Daniel, Daniel Bennett's call to repentance or Bethany Community Church calling you to repentance. It's God calling people to repentance. And you and I are recipients of that message. And after we become recipients of that message, it's God's message that we are to, li- to deliver to other people. It's not our call. Okay, um, I have an illustration here that I don't want to use, but it, it, fits, it fits the text here. It is Valentine's Day. I am <laughs> the self-declared pastor of love. Uh, before, before I was ordained uh, many years ago, I was the junior high uh, boy of love. And um, one, one day there was this uh, lovely young lady, a, a junior high girl, who I wanted to be my valentine, or something like that. And so I decided to write her a love note. Is it, is it hot in here, do you guys? <laughs> I, I, wrote her, I wrote her a valentine. And uh, in my incredibly uh, romantic way, I put two little candy hearts in this Valentine's Day card. I said something like, will you be my valentine, or will you go out with me? Some sort of corny junior high line. No offense, guys. And... Uh, I, I, and then I put two candy hearts in. Uh, one candy heart said yes, and the other candy heart said no way. Okay, That's the nice, <laughs> nicest thing I could find. So I, I gave uh, this, this note with my hearts in it and uh, gave it to this other girl to deliver to her friend. And this girl delivered, yeah, you can see where this is going. Uh, this girl takes the message, delivers it to her friend, and then comes back to me with my heart in her hand, and she puts the heart in my hand, and I I look at it, and it says, no way. (laughs) Can you believe it? (laughs) And she 
she, she looks at me and she sees my crestfallen face and she says, oh, she told me to tell you that she accidentally ate the other one. And I said, really? She said, no, not, not really, I just feel bad for you. And I had been uh, solo, my hopes exceeded the heavens, and then she dashed them again. Why did she do that? She didn't like the way I responded. She felt bad for me. So she delivered a different message. You know what? I told, you're just the messenger. You don't have a right to decide what message gets delivered to a person. You and I, as messengers from God, our goal is not to determine how people are going to respond to our message. Our goal is to take the message that God gives us and give it to others. And God has said, look, this is my message to people. And if you love people, this is the message you're going to give them. The most loving thing that we can do for people who are separated from God is tell them about this message of repentance. God desires to have a relationship with you. You must turn from your sins and place your faith in Christ. That's God's message, not ours. It would be incredibly arrogant for those of us who are sinners to call other people to repentance based upon our own understanding of what sin was, based upon our own understanding of what other people should do. That would be the height of arrogance. But it is also the height of arrogance for us to take the message that God has given us to give to people and say, I don't like that one. I'm going to come up with a different one. We're messengers, and we take God's message of repentance to people. Here's a couple applications from this point. First of all, this. Don't preach your lame message when God has given you a life-changing message. Don't take your lame message with your five points or two points or whatever and give that to people when God has entrusted you with a life-changing message. Take that to your culture. Another application here I think we see from the text is is, uh, we must be outside these walls sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others. We don't just remain inside here in our our holy huddle and say, boy, isn't it great to repent? We take this life-changing gospel message to a culture that's crying out for it, and we give them God's message, which leads to kind of a third application point here. Don't let the condition of your culture shock you, surprise you, or frighten you. John the Baptist is ministering to a culture here that is very dark spiritually. Those who are most prominent in their culture have a heart that's hard toward God. They're hypocrites, and yet in that religious milieu, John the Baptist is called to preach a message of repentance. And he doesn't let the culture scare him. The call to repentance is proclaimed by God to lost people. Second characteristic about the call to repentance is this. The call to repentance is accompanied by the promise of the forgiveness of sins. We come to verse 4, or excuse me, verse 3, and we read about the content of John the Baptist's proclamation, kind of a summary of it. It says that he went into all the region around the Jordan, and this was his message He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as we read this, maybe a couple questions come to mind. First of all, was he saying that baptism is that which would save people? 
He's saying that get baptized and then you'll repent and then your sins will be forgiven. No, the baptism here represented what was already taking place internally within them. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian. He was not a follower of Christ, and yet he was a contemporary of John. And this is what he knew about John the Baptist's ministry, and this is what he said. This is a first century historian. Josephus said, John the Baptist was the one who exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice, and then to join in baptism. In his view, this righteousness was preliminary if baptism was to be acceptable to God. People were not to be baptized to gain pardon for their sins. They were to be baptized to consecrate themselves, implying that the soul had already been cleansed by right behavior. The idea there is that Josephus recognized that John the Baptist's message that he was preaching of baptism was to reflect what had already taken place within them. So that's one issue. Is this baptism something that saved people in John's estimation? No, it was to symbolize what had already taken place, this purifying effect that had already taken place in their hearts. Now here's another question, and I want to be very, very clear on this. We're going to spend some time talking about this. Here's the second question. Listen carefully. Does repentance result in the forgiveness of sins? Does repentance cause our sins to be forgiven? The answer is no. Okay? Henry VII was an emperor, Holy Roman Emperor, and in 1077 AD, he had been excommunicated from the church. And so his nobles were kind of rebelling against the things he was telling them to do. They said, you're not even part of the church anymore. He goes, man, i got to get back, back and be part of the church. And so he goes and he stands in front of the, where the Pope is residing in Canosa, and he stands barefoot in the snow for three days, begging the Pope to let him back into the church, showing his contrition and his penance. And finally, the Pope lets him back into the church and has communion with him, and Henry VII continues his, his reign, Henry IV. Now, is that what repentance is supposed to look like. In other words, does God look at our hearts and say, well, he's kind of sorry, but not quite repentant enough. I'll, I'll, I'll wait for a little bit. And then you, you do some more things. God, am I repentant enough yet? And God says, no, not quite yet. Is that how repentance works? Absolutely not. There's nothing that we do that causes God to say, okay, I'm going to forgive you of your sins. But understand this. Here's the relationship. You never have repentance, let me put it this way, you never have the forgiveness of sins without it also being accompanied by genuine repentance. You never have a person placing their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins without it being accompanied by repentance. Repentance doesn't cause forgiveness of sins, but forgiveness of sins is never separate from repentance. Let me give you an illustration. This didn't work on my uh, children last night as I was trying to talk with them about the nature of repentance because apparently they think that big rocks can float. But imagine that you were holding on to a big rock and you jumped into the ocean. And as you began to sink, you realized, as long as I hold on to this rock, I'm going to continue to sink. And you see a life preserver cast out in the ocean that you can grab onto. What has to take place 
in order for you to be saved. You have to grab onto that life preserver. But what is accompanied by that grabbing onto the life preserver? You're letting go of that, of that rock. And as one places one's faith in Jesus Christ, what they're saying is, look, I've been holding on to this this big rock of my own works. These are are dead works, and I'm going to instead place my faith in Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple of scriptures that unite faith and repentance. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews says, let's let's, uh, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He's saying that that's kind of the the same moment there. You're repenting of your dead works. You're repenting of those things you thought could save you. And instead, you're placing your faith in God. Acts 20.21 says that Paul was preaching to Jews and Gentiles the necessity of repenting toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, they, they go together. Repentance and faith are kind of like two sides of the same coin. Let me give you some other scripture. Some scripture when it's talking about how a person gets saved, just talks about faith. So, for example, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't specifically mention repentance there, does it? And yet other times, Scripture just mentions repentance apart from faith. So, for example, Acts 2, 37 and 38. Peter's just proclaimed to the Jews that what they've done is, is sin and, and crucifying the Christ. It says when they heard this, what happened? The people were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. A person coming to a point in life where they realize they cannot receive salvation based upon their own works, and they turn from that path, and they place their faith in Jesus Christ. That's repentance accompanying faith. The call to repentance is accompanied by the promise of the forgiveness of sins, not because a person has has done enough good works, but because a person is putting their trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone, turning from their works. It's interesting. These next few verses, verses 4 through 6, talk about the words of Isaiah the prophet, describing the ministry of John the Baptist and how John the Baptist was going to prepare the way for the Christ and he was going to call the, the proud to humble themselves. He was going to cause the sinners to reassert and, and, and to put their life right on the right track again. Now, it's interesting that this message of repentance was preached by Isaiah. It's preached here in Luke 3, 3 by John the Baptist. It's, this message of repentance is preached by Jesus as well. In Luke 5, 32, Jesus says, I've, I've come to call the sinners to repentance. The apostles call, preached the message of repentance. In Acts 2, 38, Peter said to them, repent, repent, as we already mentioned, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins over and over again. In Scripture, people are called to repentance. The application, I believe, from this point is is simply this. A person, if they're going to understand the forgiveness of their sins, if they're going to enter into a relationship with Jesus, they need to understand the vital importance of repentance. A person who places their trust in Jesus 
is not simply coming to Jesus as a friend. They're not simply coming to Jesus as this donut hole that will fill this donut hole in their the donut-sized hole in their their heart. They're not coming to Jesus as their their, their new therapist. They're coming to Jesus as Savior. A person needs to understand the nature of repentance to fully understand that message. A third characteristic here of the call to repentance is this. The call to repentance is given boldly so that men and women will know why they must repent. Look at verses 7 through 9 again, and it's, it's very interesting. Uh, these are the first words John teaches people, the first words we see him in the Gospel of Luke proclaim, and they're not exactly seeker-sensitive. He begins by calling them children of snakes. Uh, he says, listen, uh, verse 7, you brood of vipers. These are people that are coming to him, by the way, too. Can you imagine uh, people coming here this morning, and I say, hey, listen, you bunch of children of snakes. Who warned you guys to come to Bethany Community Church? Not seeker-sensitive, but exactly the message they needed to hear, right? Does not mean that John the Baptist didn't love these people that were coming to him? Absolutely not. He did love them, and he understood exactly the message they needed to hear. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and don't begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham for our, as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. There's three warnings that John gives here. First of all, he warns them regarding their motivation. He says, look, think about this. Why did you come here this morning? Or why did you come here to be baptized? He says, you're like snakes. Snakes will flee the, the brush fire as, they're, they're tried to, as people try to kill them. Snakes, even snakes will leave this brush fire. What's your motivation for being here? Is your motivation simply to flee from the wrath to come? Or is there true repentance in your heart? And so he calls them, first of all, to examine their motivation. Secondly, he calls them to consider what their confidence is in. And some of these people who are coming to be baptized were very proud of their heritage, of who their father was. They say, look, our lineage, our physical lineage is Abraham. And John says, look, God could take stones, these rocks, and make them children of, children of Abraham. Don't place your confidence in your physical lineage. It's an Aesop fable about a shepherd, and this shepherd is watching his sheep, and they're traveling, and he sees this wolf, and the shepherd at first is wary of this wolf, but the wolf keeps his distance from the flock of sheep, and over the several days that the wolf kind of follows them along, the shepherd becomes more comfortable with this wolf, and in fact, he begins to see this wolf not as a danger, but as an ally. And he believes that this wolf is kind of helping him guard the sheep. And he becomes so comfortable with this wolf that at some point he decides to go into town and, and take care of some things and let the wolf watch the sheep. It doesn't go very well. And when he comes back, what does he say? He says, I got what I deserve for placing my trust in a wolf. John the Baptist, as people come to him to be baptized, he says, look, What's your confidence in? 
seriously is your confidence in the fact that you have this physical lineage and you know your great 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 granddaddy's Abraham who was a man of faith look God can take rocks and make them sons of Abraham instead repent of your sins turn to God in faith and then look at the fruit that's produced as you place your faith in God does it show genuine repentance we're going to talk about that more next week Then he says, look, you also need to know about your future if you're not truly repentant. Verse 9, he says the axe is at the root of the tree. If the tree doesn't bear good fruit, it's cut down and thrown into the fire. You need to repent. You need to turn from your sins, and as you turn from your sins and place your faith in Christ, as you place your faith in God here in this context, you're going to live a life that's a reflection of that. John gives these warnings boldly so they can know why they need to repent. Lowell Beebe this last week gave me a message from Ray Comfort. It's called Hell's Best Kept Secret. I was listening to my car and it's a great message. There's this one illustration he gives at the very beginning that I think is a great illustration. He says, imagine that someone came to you and said, "Uh, look, I just want you to know that I I paid your $25,000 traffic fine for you. He says, you might at first feel a little bit insulted because you say, I don't have a $25,000 traffic fine. Who do you think you are paying some fine and saying that I, I need your help? He says, but imagine if a person came to you and said this, look, you don't know this, but on your way to church this morning, you went 55 miles an hour through a 20-mile-an-hour zone where there were blind children having a convention. You racked up $25,000 worth of fines as you committed various offenses today. And I just want you to know about that, and I want you to know that I paid them for you. Well, that is good news. The good news isn't good news until you know the bad news. In a room this large, with this many people, it's very likely that there are some people here this morning who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who have never repented of their sins and turned to a Savior. And My exhortation to you, my, my plea with you, is that today would be the day of salvation. You'd turn from your sins, from dead works that you've been trying to to find acceptance with God on the basis of these. You would turn from those, say, this is not right anymore. I feel differently about these sins. I I have different intention toward these sins. I'm going to let go of them and turn to Christ and place my faith and trust in him alone. That would be my plea with you this morning. For those who are believers, my plea with you would be to continue bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. And again, we'll talk more about that next week. Recognizing that repentance doesn't end as we become believers, but that it continues as we have this walk of faith. And, and, believers, that we have a vital need to proclaim repentance to those whom we love. Let me close with this quote from A.W. Tozer. It should be very sobering. Tozer says this, It's my opinion that tens of thousands of people if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by accepting Christ, 
and they have not been saved. It's a sobering thought. That millions of people perhaps have had some sort of religious experience, but have not been saved because they haven't understood who Jesus is, what he saves them from, what he saves them for. Let's pray. Father, we do just place our, our trust and our confidence in your son, Jesus, alone. We understand that we have failed you. We have sinned against a holy God. And we love you. And we desire to be in complete and total obedience to you. And you pr we pray that you would enable us to do this through the working of your spirit. We pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen.